And welcome to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or maybe found us on the podcast, which can be found anywhere podcasts can be found, including now with the Harbinger Media Network. This is a special episode. My name is Stephen Hostetter. I'm here with Amy Westervelt, an investigative journalist, the host of Drilled, and the founder of the Critical Frequency Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So we have launched a new expanded Drilled called Drilled Global, which we will talk about in a second. But before we get there, I want to sort of bring our leaders along through your, your work, partially because you're one of the few guests that when we've had on, I've told other people, one of them literally told me to do Canada proud. <laughs> so I was like, all right, I am going to do Canada proud because you have been doing this work both in climate journalism and in podcasting and in creating this network of podcasts that you, you, you were ahead of your time and, and it's sort of an inspiration and so many other work that people have done. And it's like the best version of what I think like we on this show could hope we could do. And so I want to sort oh, of get our listeners so to to where we are on the show. And so you were very early to the scene, not only in climate journalism, but also in podcasting. And I'm curious, how has the state of media changed over your time? And where do you see it heading? That's a great question, because I feel like it's changed a lot. But it's interesting, too, because I've been doing climate journalism for so long. I'm a little bit skeptical of this this more recent wave of more people covering it in, in more ways, because I did, I, you know, I saw that in like the mid 2000s, too, where most outlets had a climate vertical or at least like a green vertical. And in those days, I feel like it was kind of much more focused on lifestyle or like, quote unquote, green business, you know, like all of the financial opportunities in climate or like in addressing climate. But still, it was there was a lot of coverage. And then like it all kind of went away. <laughs> and everyone was like, oh, we'll just fold this into the rest of our paper or magazine or whatever. And now in the last five or so years, I feel like the same kind of thing has happened again, where, you know, you have the Washington Post and the New York Times and the Atlantic and all of these outlets announcing that they are going to invest in covering this story in a major way. And in some cases, delivering on that, like I think the Washington Post climate team is is pretty great. They are they're putting out like quite a bit of of reporting in a really like on a really wide spectrum of issues. So that's cool. And and you know, you're definitely starting to see TV news cover it more. There was like an explosion of climate podcasts there for a while that now I feel like has winnowed back down a little bit just because of the business model of media. But yeah, I think we're starting to see more coverage. Like one really good thing I've seen in the last five years or so is just more diversity in the coverage. And I mean that in like every sense of the word. There are more people from more different backgrounds covering these issues in different ways. But there's also just so many more different types of stories, too. So you've got like personal essays. That was not a thing, you know, five years ago, really, <laughs> to have like essays about like how people felt about climate change. It was just not that common. Now I feel like it's maybe too common and, you know, <laughs> we could do with some more investigative stuff. But 
still, you know, it's it's cool to see new forms of of writing kind of make their way in here too. I think you're also seeing a lot more coverage that goes beyond just, you know, policy or science, which was really where a lot of the coverage was focused before and looks at, you know, social issues more, brings in social science more, lots more climate and health reporting recently. So all of those are really, really good things. The one downside I think I've seen in the last, you know, five to 10 years is just a total gutting of, of investigative work in the climate space. So there are really very, very few of us doing that work and it is expensive and time consuming. And that's why a lot of newsrooms kind of don't want to do it. <laughs> but um, but it's really, really necessary. And it often will spark a whole bunch of other follow-on stories too, if, if one investigation comes out. So that's something that I think we still kind of need to figure out because Again, thanks to sort of the business model of media, a lot of newsrooms are just not able to fund as much investigative work as they used to. So, yeah. But I do find, I mean, on the audience side too, like it used to be that people would sort of say, oh, there's no audience for this stuff or, you know, nobody's going to read these stories or no one's going to listen to a podcast or whatever. And now I think that that has been really proven false. There's quite a large audience for this stuff and it's growing and people are increasingly concerned and aware. So that part's cool too. Yeah, for sure. And it's funny, we have sort of the legacy media here in Canada is, mm -hmm. I would say, at this point gutted to a state where almost any investigative work seems to be above their ability. But we've have seen a growth of some smaller outlets and some nonprofit outlets that have been able to take up some of the mantle. And so some of the work that, say, like the Narwhal, which is a, a nonprofit media here in Canada, has managed to do, has like done that initial digging, which then, as you said, creates new stories that come out of it, right? Like you find this one piece and other journals are like, oh, that's interesting, you start picking at it. And then you can sort of see the whole thing unfolding across the media landscape. But it came from sort of someone investing in the investigation in the first place. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean, well, and then what's happened in the U.S., I don't know if this has happened in Canada too, but what's happening in the U.S. is that the vacuum kind of opened up by legacy media has made it possible for some independent outlets to come in. Like, that's how we exist, you know. Mm -hmm. But um, But it's also meant that there are all of these nonprofit, like investigative research organizations that are super heavily funded. So they have money to send researchers to do all of this stuff, but they also have an agenda. And like, even though I happen to agree with their agenda in many cases, I still think that like structurally, that's not great for media to have these sort of third-party entities spoon-feeding outlet stories or journalist stories. It's like, mm, I, like, I don't think you end up with a healthy press in the end of that story. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I just, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a weird time. I mean, in media, especially, I just, I feel like, you know, almost every month there's the, there's a story about 
this or that outlet shutting down or laying off half of its staff or things like that. And so far, I'm seeing a lot of the the climate reporter jobs stay safe in those cuts. But, you know, it's only a matter of time. So, yeah, I feel like actually the whole health of the media is quite a, a big component to climate action in a way that we don't often talk about. And I also think that, you know, I still think the media has not really grappled with its own role in enabling and spreading climate delay and climate denial. There has not been the sort of mea culpa that we should be getting from legacy media outlets for their role in obstruction, which is unfortunate. I I really, I'm, it's weird to me. I'm just like, why? Like, I don't understand why you can't just admit that that was a bad call (laughs) and that you're going to do better now, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we still have one of our major newspapers still publishing climate denial to this day. So Mm-hmm. We're we're not. Yeah, yeah so, so do we. The Wall Street yeah. Journal still does it. So, and I don't know if this is happening in Canada too, but there's this big thing here right now to try to kind of recast fact checking as censorship. So, like, oh, if you're trying, if you come out and say that you know my climate denial is based on faulty science that doesn't check out, you are censoring me. What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cancel culture, but for facts. You try to cancel the non-facts. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's very, it's a very strange, I don't know. I feel like the whole way that people are talking about free speech right now is very warped. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. So a somewhat of a selfish, maybe too strong of a word, but a, a question I have particular interest in, which is with your work with critical frequency. Your shows sort of show that there are many different ways to approach and tell climate stories. And we've been doing this show here since 2006. I've been on the show since 2012. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, we're a a very old show. But what that has meant is that at different times, we've felt like we keep coming back to the same stories. Like at one point, we're like, are we just a weather station? We're just telling you about four different hurricanes across the world, you know, or, oh, this is the 16th story about how the oil industry is actually lying to you. And it can get challenging for us to find new ways into stories because so many of the climate stories end up being the same things, right? Like, oh, it's even hotter this year is a story that sort of has to be told every year, partially because it's important to tell people it's still getting worse, but also because right. we've, because it is true, and it's part of the overall warming narrative. Um, <laughs> right. But but it is a difficult thing to come up with new, interesting, and engaging ways to do climate communication. And so I'm interested in how you think about that and how you approach these stories. That's a great question, because, yeah, I do think that people get sort of they'll just start to tune out if all they're ever hearing is like it's once again hotter this year. (laughs) So for me, I mean, I think about and actually this is why I love audio, because I was a print reporter for a long time before I got into audio and, and why I particularly love podcasts, because I feel like they lend themselves to to taking a more narrative approach. And that has 
now kind of informed how I approach print stories too, as I sort of try to think about like, what is, what is the actual narrative arc here? Is there a particular person I'm interviewing that can, that can kind of be not to dehumanize them and be like a main character that takes us through this story that, you know, kind of is a person that readers or listeners can relate to and follow as they go through something. I don't know. I always try to kind of do take that approach of like telling a story and making it really human. And then of course I often am focused on accountability and sort of revealing things that are going on behind the scenes so trying to again like unravel that as more of like a mystery and less of just a straightforward you know this politician said this and then they took money from that person (laughs) so yeah trying to get into the story behind it all and not just the straight facts, I think. And and now, I mean, I feel like once you've, I'm sure you feel this way too, like once you've been doing it for a long time, I can see and or find the climate angle in almost any story. And I feel like that's really important too, to just kind of bring it in as a lens to other stuff that's happening versus like telling a climate story, which is just about temperatures and rising seas or climate science or whatever. It's like, this is sort of the the prism through which we can tell really any story about anything that's happening in the world right now. Yeah, for sure. And that is, it's interesting because how often, earlier you mentioned how many times sort of climate can get rolled back into, oh, we'll just do this in our normal investigation, which if done well is true, right? Like, and it's also true when like governments are like, oh, we don't necessarily need a climate change person. It's going to be part of our whole government. And you feel like, yes, that is important and yeah, necessary. Yeah, that's true. But also mm-hmm. then, so often, that just means we're not going to do anything. <laughs> like, right. It's, it's a I know, balance. I've been saying for a long time, yes, totally. I feel like the the like the way that I would, like in my, if I was just designing a newsroom, I would, that was doing, you know, all of the things and was just trying to incorporate climate into all of them i really feel like you you just need to kind of have a climate editor on multiple stories so that there is someone there who i guess in the same way that like you know people will do like a cultural sensitivity read for books and things like that to make sure that they're not huge blind spots or really problematic tropes making their way in or whatever like i actually feel like that's how we should be thinking about climate (laughs) is like There needs to be someone who is, because like on the one hand, yes, it should be part of everything. On the other hand, people who have no background in it really don't know enough to spot a source that is not someone that should be trusted or data that is faulty or a study that's clearly been funded by an industry-backed think tank or, you know, all of these things. It's like you, you have to have, I don't even mean, I'm not even scratching the science part, which I think is the thing that scares most people off, right? They're like, I don't know, it's too complicated. I can't like, I don't really understand how climate models work. I actually feel like that's less important (laughs) to covering climate well and accurately than having a pretty good grasp on who are the like operatives, who are the shady 
think tanks. What are the different companies getting up to and how are they doing it? What are the PR firms that do all of the, you know, sort of subtle, dirty work for them? All of that stuff. If you don't know that, it's so easy for you to accidentally amplify disinformation. Yeah, for sure. And especially as we get more and more into these sort of quote unquote net zero pledges that are totally yes. out to lunch. And it's like, yes, you, it's meaningless to tell me an oil company has a net zero pledge. And anytime you are saying that an oil right. company has a net zero pledge, and then you look at their investing, their notes to investors saying they're going to increase production until 2050. You should just not print that. Or if you're going to print that, put it in brackets. And this is an obvious lie. Like there's just, what are we doing here? Yeah, exactly. I know if you go to their, if you go to like any oil company website, nine times out of 10, it looks like a clean energy company, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, in Canada. I mean, and that's not even like getting into the all the carbon capture stuff or hydrogen or any of these sort of like false solutions that have been proposed recently too. There's a lot that like, ugh, I don't know. I, just, I feel like the, the greenwashing or sort of delay tactics have become more and more complicated and detailed and layered in a way that it, it's hard to cover if you don't know what's going on already. Yeah, 100%. Okay, so... I want to start moving towards our conversation about Drilled and Drilled Global. Before we do, we're going to go to a quick music break. We will be right back with Amy Westerfeld. We are getting in to Drilled and the work that you do holding oil and other companies to account. My first question is about the framing of Drilled, because I love it. Because you frame it as a true crime podcast about climate change, which is Mm -hmm. A, unique, and B, very interesting. And so how did you find that? How did you, what led you to that framing? And how does it impact sort of the way you approach the work? So I I started doing radio maybe like 10 years ago. I was a print reporter and then I was, you know, driving around listening to to our national public radio in the car and I was like, I wish I could do radio. And I thought, well, I probably could, you know, I, like I should just find out where the nearest member station is to me and reach out to them. And so I, I sent them an email subject line would you like an overaged intern (laughs) and they they were like you know actually we have a we usually it usually takes us longer to train people to be reporters than it does to teach people how to use audio equipment so sure come on in so I did like a one-month internship where they trained me in audio and then they hired me as a staff reporter so I was doing you know community reporting in Reno Nevada which is a very wild place to be a local reporter. There's so many 
weird things going on. And it was great. It was great training. But it's also where I realized that, like, oh, my gosh, these four minute news features that you hear on the radio are called from like four hours worth of tape and all of the like, you know, personality and story gets cut out along the way because you've got to, you know, fit into that window and whatnot. And so I started thinking about like what, you know, this was also around the time that Serial, the first season of Serial had come out and it was this huge hit and everyone was like falling in love with narrative reported podcasts. And I was like, man, I feel like climate would be such a slam dunk for this kind of podcast. But it took me a while to figure out a story that would work. So then I got assigned by a print publication to cover a bunch of climate lawsuits. And I was sitting in a courtroom in San Francisco and there was like this very eccentric judge who had requested a climate science tutorial in his courtroom. So he had asked for both sides to present on kind of like who knew what and when around climate science. And it was this like, I, so I, I just was like, oh my God, that's it. Like, I'm going to do a true crime podcast about climate change because this is a way to kind of get all of this information that's otherwise a little bit hard to follow and kind of disorganized into a container that people are familiar with, you know? And like, all the characters are here. We can get into some of the the documents that are evidence if we just have like witnesses reading them. This is great. So that's that's kind of like how I first came up with it. And I actually pitched it to a bunch of big podcast companies and they all told me that there was not enough of an audience to merit like spending the money required to to make a narrative climate podcast. But I was like so convinced. I'm like, this is a good idea. I know it's a good idea. So I just made it at night in my car, like hiding from my kids. And I had a friend who helped me out with the audio engineering part. And we got like a small grant to cover his time. And then we put it out and this, the first season was like a huge hit. We got a million listeners in our first season, a ton of really good press. And, uh, you know, like it was, there was clearly an audience for it, first of all. <laughs> so, yeah. And initially I was only going to put out that one season as like a limited run series, but Halfway through reporting that season, I found out about another case that was really, really interesting that I thought could be a good follow on. And then from there, I think, you know, we're about to start in on season 10. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And I have a whole long list of like future stories, too. There's so much in this in this realm because, you know, and, and part of the reason for the true crime framing, too, is that I'm like, I feel like. A lot of the stories that have been told about climate up to that point had been like really treating it as some sort of an inevitability, you know, and and like tied to, you know, sort of expected human failing or, you know, something that there was no stopping. But the reality is that like a very relatively small group of people made decisions for all of us that have put us in this situation and and i'm like that is that's a crime actually (laughs) Um, and we should treat it that way you know and i i very firmly believe that 
I don't know how any of these quote unquote solutions that people are proposing are ever going to work if there's no understanding of or accountability for how we got here in the first place. You know, and you see it already. So many of the things that are happening with electrification are repeating the same mistakes that we made with fossil fuels, you know, and it's like, and unfortunately, I mean, in the most hypocritical turn, you see, you know, pro-oil people kind of pointing the finger at lithium mining, you know, as being like so environmentally damaging and socially unjust and all of these things. But it's like, well, they're able to do that because we haven't addressed the underlying root drivers of this problem, you know, which lie in in a sort of systemically unjust approach to the economy and to how things are run in most countries in the world in general. Yeah, for sure. And so a million downloads in the first season is bonkers to me. Yeah. And so you're you're planning an expansion. You're here to talk in some ways about this expansion going from yeah. sort of what drilled to drilled global. And so can you tell us mm-hmm. what that is? Yeah. So a couple of years ago, we started reporting a story in Guyana following Exxon's expansion there. So Exxon has, you know, they had held various exploratory permits there for like 20 years, but kind of been sitting on them because it was much easier to get oil from Venezuela than from Guyana, which requires deep water offshore drilling. Then things sort of went south for them in Venezuela, and they they thought, okay, well, let's just go down the coast to Guyana. Started doing some exploring, and in 2015, struck oil there. And the projections that started coming out were really wild. It was like, wow, there's more oil here than there is in the Permian Basin in Texas. You know, this is a huge discovery. And they were able to move very, very quickly because there was not really any kind of regulatory framework for oil and gas in Guyana because they didn't have an industry for it. So by 2019, they were shipping their first barrels and they're now on track to to have Guyana actually outpacing their Texas production by 2025, which is really, I mean, lightning fast. And they They sort of brag about this in a lot of public speeches, too, of like how they've been able to do things in Guyana in just five years that would usually take 10. That was like the first thing that made me want to look into it because I was like, wait a minute, there have not been like technological advances that enable that. So like the only way that would be happening is if you're basically like not adhering to any kind of regulation, (laughs) which I'm sure they would argue like. The regulation isn't needed because they always do things so safely that it's completely fine. But I think we can point to every oil spill in history to prove that's wrong. So anyway, we started reporting this and I found a reporter in Georgetown, Guyana, who had been covering this oil and gas boom since the first oil was discovered in 2015. A young reporter named Kiana Wilberg, who reports for a paper there called Kiter News. And she and I just started co-reporting in this way that made the story so much better because I had all of this kind of background knowledge on Exxon and knew what they were doing internationally. And she had all of this very detailed knowledge about what they were doing on the ground in Guyana. So we were able to share notes back and forth. And then she would write stuff up 
for her paper in a way that was relevant to their audience. And then she and I would work on things together for international outlets. And then we also worked on the podcast together. And it got me thinking that we should be doing this more often, that, you know, climate is a global story, oil companies are global companies, and even the outlets that have reporters in many different locations, those reporters are almost never actually working together. They're still covering stuff in a place-by-place way. So then we started reporting what is now becoming the first series that we're putting out as a global series on the criminalization of protests. And again, this I started out just looking at this in the U.S., and the role of fossil fuel companies in pushing for laws that increase the fines and jail time for climate protesters. And in the course of that, just happened to be talking to, you know, a reporter that we work with in Australia sometimes. And she was like, oh, yeah, like the same thing is happening here. And then I heard the same thing from a friend in the UK and in Canada. And the more we talked, the more I started sort of connecting dots on how this trend was spreading. And I was like, oh, of course, you know, (laughs) of course, this is happening in a more coordinated way than any of us really realized. So now I've brought on reporters in a couple of different African countries, in Europe, in India, Latin America, and the Caribbean, the U.S., Canada the UK to and Australia to kind of start to do this in a more intentional and coordinated way to really look at how various legislative trends are spreading, how kind of cultural and narrative trends are spreading, because that's such an important piece to all of this that I think gets left out a lot is like, you know, the rhetorical framing that often precedes policy. And then also looking at specific companies like you know we looked at exxon and what they were kind of saying and doing in the u.s versus what they were doing in guyana but we were and we were able to see oh okay like they're deploying the same playbook they used in the u.s 20 years ago in guyana because they can get away with it there we're also looking at companies like total and what they're saying in france versus what they're doing in you know, Uganda and Suriname and all of these quote unquote frontier territories that they're operating in. So again, like it's not like we weren't getting stories on what Total's doing in Suriname, but we weren't, we're not getting the sort of connect the dots cross border view that, that I think we'll be able to deliver with this expanded network. And so we'll have both print and audio stories and We're also lining up various co-publishers and co-reporters, too, so that, you know, ideally, like, we don't want to do a story, for example, about what's happening in Australia without an Australian outlet also picking it up, you know? (laughs) So, so, yeah. Right. So, yeah, just kind of more reporters, more reporting, and really trying to connect the dots across borders. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting how important that is, it's like in, yeah. in how similar it is to the challenges in regulating these multinationals, right? Like every yeah. like every jurisdiction can have regulation, but as long as they move around enough, it becomes really hard to chase them down. And the same is true for reporting. You know, so many things exist really specifically in their own 
contexts. And it is really hard to actually sort of track these down unless you unless you build a, a network of people who are talking to each other, which, yeah, is yeah. which it should be easier because of the fact that we have technology, you know, like here we are having conversation from Toronto to Costa Rica. Yet it right. There often isn't the resources put in to really make that actually useful. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, even, even just like gathering data on stuff. So like, for example, one of the stories in this series is looking at the role that various think tanks have played in kind of, you know, softening the ground for stripping rights from activists in various countries. And because we sort of pulled together a list of the member think tanks for this global network called the Atlas Network, we were able to then have our reporters in each country like look at that list, look at what's happening around the criminalization of protest and see, oh yeah, okay, in almost every one of these cases, one of these Atlas Network think tanks was really doing a lot of heavy lifting on like, you know, media hits and white papers and meeting with politicians and really like kind of laying the groundwork for these for legislation that further criminalizes protest. And like that is not something that's been reported on before. And I really don't think we would have figured it out if we didn't have you know, several people working together in different countries looking at the same stuff. Yeah, for sure. And it's something that we've noticed a bit too, mostly only again in Canada and the States because it's where we get most of our media. But you do see a lot of the same trends happening both here in Canada and then in the States and in like using similar tactics, using similar language to describe the protesters you know, specifically focusing on often more so focusing on indigenous populations. And then yeah. this sort of way that the industry itself funds the policing in some different ways, right? Yeah. Like there's a, a lot yeah. of that, that like when you dive into it, it gets really, really icky. It's like, it's not just private security. It's, it's also really the dark. way that... Yeah, that policing is being funded by by the oil industry. Yeah. Yeah. Like we had actually, weirdly, there are a number of Canadian companies funding police forces in the U.S. around their pipelines. This happened with the line with line three in Minnesota. Enbridge had an escrow account that they were paying Minnesota state police out of to crack down on pipeline protesters, many of whom were indigenous people. So it's just, it's like, to me, I'm just like, how is that not, how is that even legal that a company that's not even from your own country is paying to police your citizens? Yeah, the idea that any police can receive any payment from corporations from a know. company yeah. yeah like like they acted too like the, the fact that they'd run it through its escrow account made any difference at all you know and i'm <laughs> like i mean i guess that makes it technically legal but it's still fucking gross you know yeah and yeah and you can imagine how quickly th this gets incredibly dark right like 
how how fast does the profit motive really start creating some very terrifying incentive structures yeah. and in an already very totally. problematic industry like let's not pretend that police being publicly funded is gonna is, is, exactly. is already not a problem because of their current existence but like the idea that then being like oh yeah also if you're rich enough you can make them be your private military is right ripe for corruption it's very concerning. The other the other sort of piece of that, too, that I think people don't often realize is that a lot of these like, you know, Department of Natural Resources folks who it sounds like, right, they're there to protect the natural resource. No, they're there to protect private industries claim on those resources. And I don't think people necessarily <laughs> realize that because when you see someone that's like, you know, Department of Natural Resources, you know, handcuffing a water protector, it seems illogical. You know, it seems like, wait, you guys should be on the same side. Aren't you both protecting natural resources? But in fact, no, <laughs> they're, they're there to protect, yeah, private industries claim to land and water and other kinds of natural resources. For sure. And so, we will be. We will come back with a few more questions about this. I want to get into. You referenced it briefly previously about the role of PR companies because I think that is wickedly under thought about, and they seem to be skating yeah. by. I guess because they're good at PR, but I think that we should. <laughs> yeah. We should question that too. But we're going to go to a quick music break and be right back with Amy Westerbo. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported, and we would take this opportunity to graciously thank every individual donating to our Patreon page. Thank you very much. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, home of such podcasts as Alberta Advantage, The Breach Show, and the Pullback Podcast, as well as over 40 other excellent shows. We are here in our last segment with Amy Westervelt, an investigative journalist, host of Drilled and founder of Critical Frequency Podcast, who is launching Drilled Global, which you can check out right now if you Google it. We'll ask exactly how in a couple seconds. Before we do, I want to get back to some of these stories you'll be covering and the, and the ways you'll be holding people accountable. And one industry that you have been talking about and covering in your work is PR. And so can you yeah. talk about what their role is in delaying climate action and how you think they've managed to avoid being held accountable? Yeah, it's incredible. You know, I think that it's important to understand that the the kind of the corporate PR industry as it exists today really began in the late 1800s in the US and quickly spread from there. 
essentially protect companies from democracy. You know, you had you had multiple things happening at this time. You had labor unions striking and gaining a lot of power. You had the vote expanding to lots of people who were not just white landowning men. You had journalists who were running exposés on big corporations. And you had the U.S. government starting to pass its very first regulations on industry, which had not existed prior to, I want to say, the 1870s. So all of a sudden, these kind of captains of industry were like, we don't get to do everything we want to do anymore. What the heck? How are we going to deal with this? And into this emerges the PR industry. And their entire role is to manage a company or an industry's relationship with various publics. So I think when people think about PR, they just think like, oh, yeah, you know, you book someone on a TV show or you get your executive quoted in a newspaper or, you know, maybe you're doing some advertising. Yeah, they do all of those things. That is like the most innocuous thing that they do. What they're really doing is manipulating how the public views that company or that industry. And they do that in a variety of ways. It's it's PR people who created science denial initially. That was John Hill on behalf of the tobacco companies back in the 60s. You know, it's PR people that helped to come up with climate science denial. And in many cases, they are working for multiple industries at the same time, and they are the way that ideas flow between them. There's kind of been this, this idea that like, oh, big tobacco did all this stuff and then big oil copied them. No, the same PR firms were working for oil and tobacco all along. So they just deployed the same strategies for both of them. They found it to be very effective in tobacco. So they said, hey, well, you guys should try this too. So they've always kind of been doing the heavy lifting for particularly industries that impose some kind of cost on the public that needs to be managed. So pollution, you know, labor abuses, anything like that that needs to be spun in some way so that they can stave off regulation and maintain social license. That's the work that PR companies are doing. And they have been really integral to the tactics of of climate delay and obstruction and all of those things. And they have totally managed to avoid scrutiny, in part, like you said before, I think because they're pretty good at doing PR for themselves, too. And they will often kind of say like, well, you know, any one firm, if you call them out on like, for example, there's a a large I think the largest PR firm in the world is called Edelman. And they work for Exxon, Chevron, Shell. I think they've done some stuff for BP, too. They kind of work for every oil company. And when they've been pressed about it, their response is basically like, well, if we don't do it, someone else will. And we have this longstanding relationship with them, so we have a better chance of actually getting them to change, which is complete BS because, yeah, like Exxon's CEO is not taking real advice from their PR person at Edelman. That's ridiculous. (laughs) So it's, and, you know, we know from history that at a certain point, all of the PR and advertising firms kind of decided not to work for the tobacco companies anymore. And so there is a little bit of a push right now 
to get them to to kind of do the same thing for oil companies. The oil companies are a pretty major spender in the PR space. They spend more on PR and advertising than they do on lobbying. And again, this includes not just, you know, media relations, but things like funding sporting events, setting up, you know, photo ops with other thought leaders. Like this is happening in a big way around the oil company president who's been tapped as the president of the next conference of the parties, which is the annual climate summit. It's being hosted by the United Arab Emirates and the president of their national oil company has been tapped to be the president of the climate summit, which like many people have pointed out is a clear conflict of interest. But the Edelman and various other PR firms have been doing a lot to try to kind of surround him with thought leaders in the climate space and get those people to say that, you know, he's the right guy for the job. So you have John Kerry coming out saying, well, yeah, he's been a longtime clean tech guy. And you have like Bloomberg and Bill Gates and all these people. And that's all being arranged by PR people. Like that's not happening organically. You know, setting up meetings with high-level CEOs so that they can then get a photo op with them and put out a press release saying that, you know, such and such met with this, you know, this big tech CEO when they were in San Francisco. These are all things that PR companies do to help kind of manage the image of different clients. And they do it for foreign governments too. So like McCann Erickson has a whole separate like internal agency that they've created called Well7 that handles all of Saudi Aramco's business. And and part of that is, you know, sanitizing the reputation of the Saudi government in foreign countries in a way that, you know, I mean, honestly, I've I've been calling it murder washing because I don't really know how else to describe it. <laughs> you know? It's like, yes, greenwashing for sure, but also there's a whole lot of other stuff going on too. So yeah, that's the kind of stuff that PR agencies do. And they have been very integral to really warping how the media covers this stuff because they will not just feed stories to the media, but also bully the media if they feel like their clients, you know, perspective is not being adequately reported on that's been a tactic for a long time since like the 80s where they will have kind of appointed attack dogs that will go after reporters that are you know being critical of them and try to get them fired or silenced and it freaking works because we don't have any editors anymore that have the backbone to stand up to these guys. I've seen it with several reporters over the years and you know they will they'll try to get people fired, they will try to marginalize you. There was a whole coordinated effort against me to try to make it seem like I was being paid by a bunch of, you know, environmental nonprofits and was like secretly not a journalist and, you know, all of this stuff too. It's like they will try everything they can to discredit people, to get them fired, to remove their platform, all of that kind of stuff. And again, a lot of that is being coordinated by PR agencies. So, and they're 
these are like multi-billion dollar global companies. These are not little like mom and pop shops, you know? So, so yeah, they really, I, like in my opinion, they have massively warped the whole information ecosystem. And I, I lay a lot of the blame for our whole disinformation crisis at their feet. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense, right? Like how quickly we can see this transition from news to content and how much that yes. the idea that sort of news is now just your own opinion and I can find a story that says whatever I want and therefore it's all the same. And that sort of right. mushing together, you know, and, and even the way that so many ads now pretend to be stories. Like here in Canada, we're in this very weird moment right now where Facebook and Google have have slowly begun blocking news stories because we're in this fight over ad revenue between media companies. And so they're like, well, mm -hmm. okay, then we won't we won't share any news on our platforms. Therefore, we're not taking money from your ads. So therefore, you know, it's right. Exactly. Right. Look, they did in Australia to go back to our stories uh, about how they're doing yes. the same things all over the world. Yet yeah. the one thing you can do if you want is if you write a story that you pay the National Post to play, to play, you can then advertise that on Facebook. Right. So Facebook will not so allow... So advertorials can exactly. be advertised, but like they actual journalism can be. Yeah. And it's like, you wonder how we end up where we are. <laughs> this is... Yeah. This yeah. is the scenario we live in. And it's... Yeah. I mean... Yeah. Yeah. It's not good. It's not great. <laughs> but but this work that you were doing is a big part of pushing back against that. And so I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit more about how you see this project growing and any other areas of interest that you'll be covering in the next little bit that you can sort of hint at. Yes. Yes. So so we have this, this anti-protest series. We have about 20 different stories, including one from Canada, looking at how Oil companies there have used what's called red washing to try to kind of wrap themselves in approval from very targeted First Nations spokespeople and use that to claim that pipeline protesters are actually racist. It's very clever, very clever strategy. We've also pinpointed the, the think tanks that have kind of orchestrated all of that in Canada as well. And we also have stories from Brazil, India, Nigeria, Uganda, the U.S., Canada, U.K., Europe, Australia, really all over in that series. After that, we are doing a whole series on climate finance, which is something that I feel like people's eyes start to glaze over as soon as you say it. So we're really trying to get into, you know, the stories behind what's going on with this attempt to restructure how development funding works, how people are going to pay for a transition to cleaner energy, how like the whole crazy story behind carbon offsets and what a boondoggle they are, what's been going on with this whole backlash against ESG, all of these kinds of things that are all happening. And then, and then how, you know, finance could be a lever for for solutions and what it would take for that to actually happen. So that's coming out towards the end of the year. And then we are also looking at 
the kind of what we've been calling the gas lock-in that's happened on the back of the Russia-Ukraine war in the last year and sort of where that's really taken hold and how and who's been involved and how it was orchestrated and all of those kinds of things. And then this total story too, where we're looking at what that company is doing and saying in France. It's it's recently done one of these big rebrands where it's calling itself Total Energies. Also, it's an energy company, not a an oil and gas company. And their relationship with the French government, it's very interesting and very, very cozy. And they sort of manage to kind of fund a lot of corruption in a, in a very smart way where it looks like they're just you know, funding arts programs. <laughs> yeah, so we'll be looking at that kind of in Europe and then also in Africa and Latin America. So they are, would you say that they are going beyond petroleum? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. Yes. Not a, oh, and love then the also, and on, the, on the PR front, we are launching kind of an ongoing project that I've been calling Petroganda, where we have sort of, this will, this will launch, I think this will be out in early September. So hopefully... <laughs> Hopefully it's out by the time people are listening to this. But we have put together sort of the top five or six narratives that the fossil fuel industry has used over the course of its existence because they don't really come up with any new ideas. It's like really recycling stuff all of the time. That's the, the only recycling they truly do. And they and then looking at how those are showing up in things today and sort of having an, an ongoing tracking of the messaging and what the PR firms are doing and which firms are doing what and sort of really keeping tabs on that industry in a more ongoing way as well. Amazing. And so if folks want to follow along with all of this work, how can they do it? Drilled.media is where everything lives. So podcasts, written stuff, everything is there. Amazing. That, that's so much simpler. So often I ask this question and people take so like a good three <laughs> minutes to explain the different ways they can find it. That's so direct and so clear. Um, yes. Awesome. Oh, so it's our, it is our tradition, that's the word I'm looking for, on this show to give our guests the last word. So I'll throw it to you in a half a second. But before I do, I just want to say thank you so much. This has been Amy Westervelt, the investigative journalist, host of Drilled, and founder of the Critical Frequency Podcast who has just launched Drilled Global. Go check it out. It has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. If you have ever have anything else you want to say to Canada, please let me know. And yeah, any last thoughts? <laughs> oh, gosh. I guess my last thought would just be, this is like the thing I've been on my soapbox about the most in the last few years is just that like accountability is about taking the first step towards solutions. It's not about blame or punishment or all of these things that it kind of gets accused of being I like I, I hear this a lot where people are like oh it's so negative and like oh you know you just want to punish the oil companies and you know I'm like no I want to understand how we got here address that you know hold the people responsible accountable so that we can move on to doing things better 